0: You are listening to the Savage Wonder Podcast. This show is a long-form, one-on-one conversation with a veteran in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax exempt nonprofit 501 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events. My guest this week was the... Incredible writer Casey Tellison Casey is probably known to many of you who either are veterans or follow the veteran community um, and to those of you that don't um, you should know Casey I'm now having read his memoir Freaks of a Feather I'm a huge fan of his and it made me Bring him on this particular show. I was interviewing him initially for Profiles in Havoc, and I was like, "No, this this interview is going to work on Savage Wonder." And it's really because Casey is just a phenomenal writer, and it's and I say that because we really don't. I, I try not to bring nonfiction writers onto Savage Wonder. This really is a platform for artists and for people that are writing fiction or what have you, not necessarily writing. Uh, memoir. But Casey has not only been a devoted reader of a wide range of books, uh, and that has clearly made an imprint on his ability to write, but also he's been an avid student of creative nonfiction. And you really see that in his writing. I have not read probably as well-written a memoir ever. Um, certainly not from the military community. I'm I want to overstate it and have a case of recency bias, but I really I can't remember a memoir I've read that was, that I found um, so enthralling for the craft that was used to write it. I've certainly found a lot of memoirs completely captivating based off the experiences of the author or what have you, autobiographical data points. But, um, and Casey certainly has those, but there's an awful lot of art to how he writes. And there's so many philosophical points that he weaves throughout his writing. Uh, his some of the themes of myth, its importance, certainly to him as a young man, and maybe to more than just him as a young man. Um, you know, the tropes of shame, um, violence, love of violence. You know, there, there's a lot of timeless themes in there. And the way he addresses them, uh, I've never felt so satisfied reading someone's war stories where you really do feel like you're there. That And that's completely due to two things, I think. One, Casey's willingness to not shy away from some delicate moments, some shameful moments, some... I don't know if tender is the right word, but kind of precious moments, moments that you don't really open up and tell strangers very often. You know, the first time he squeezes the trigger in combat, that kind of thing. Um, So one, his willingness to not shy away from that. But then two, his willingness to stay in that space and really through metaphor, through just some of the semantics that he uses. Uh, really explore the senses of what it's like in those moments. That really conveys it, and brings it home to you, and really makes you feel. It makes you understand him, his choices, his thought process, um, and and really feel the second and third order effects of the decisions he makes. It's um it's a hell of a write, and it makes it for a hell of a read. And uh, so that's a long way of saying that I was like, if I'm gonna have a memoir writer come on Savage Wonder. I think, I think Casey's the droid I'm looking for. So it was great to have him on. As you'll hear me tell him up front in the episode, I was a little neurotic about the interview because I felt I'd walked a mile in his shoes after reading the book. And that kind of took away a lot of the obvious questions I would have thought to ask. And I was like, I'm kind of overprepared. <laughs> and now we're just going to be two guys talking uh, and, and just conversing. Cause, cause I, I don't have as many questions as I would have. But, you know, what I love about Casey uh, as a person and as a writer is that he is interested in big ideas and themes. And that led to a really um, fun, enriching discussion for me. Uh, Just about a whole bunch of things which we've kind of hinted at already, but you'll hear what they are shortly. So um, really a blast to talk to him. And I really hope... That we see his next work sooner than later, um, and if God forbid it becomes fiction, that wouldn't suck either, because I think um, you know he's kind of in a, a place where I think his skill set matches the fascinating subject matter that he can talk about, and when you have both of those, you kind of want to see them start generating stories, and you want to see. Deliverables start making it out to market and, and to us. So, as much as I hope his family's taken care of and all that with him choosing to be a lawyer at the moment and busy in law school, um, I, I really can't wait for his writing to uh, start leaking out to us. Okay, that's, I think, as good an intro as you guys need to have to fully appreciate. This episode, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and the Artistic Director at Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is The Savage Wonder of Casey Tellison.
1: Welcome to the show, Casey. Wow, well, thanks for having me,
0: Chris. So, Trying to think of the right word to use to describe how I feel going into this interview. Um, I guess the best one is overprepared. Um, I like going in not knowing enough so I can ask really interesting questions. Your book is fucking phenomenal, and I'm like, I uh, after reading it, I was like, Am I gonna have anything to say, or am I just gonna sit here and go like Chris Farley and those old SNL skits and just go, Hey, remember when you talked about that? yeah, that was awesome. you know, like that's what I feel I'm gonna be the whole time. so i'm um, I'm I might just have to feign ignorance and ask you to, you know, talk about stuff that I already know the answers to. um but it's a phenomenal piece of work. Uh, and I'll I, I I think most good books can probably be judged right off the first page where it's clear that you have read a lot of books. I think that old adage about you know you shouldn't write a book until you've read like a thousand or something holds true. That you, as an astute reader, made for a very interesting and nuanced, incredible writer. Uh, Because the first page you you did not immediately plunge into. I was born in blah 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 in you know this age. Like and and for a for a nonfiction and memoir, uh, that's yeah I'm sure as you know incredibly rare, and I deeply appreciated it as a reader. But I even more appreciated what you had to say, so I guess I'm I'm going to throw this out as an attempt at a question. Is it fair to categorize the book as an exploration of the convergence of myth and reality in a young man's experience? Because I feel like that's a theme that we keep coming back to is that hey, as a young guy, I was enmeshed in these myths and theme and, and, and stories. And I'm not using myth as a pejorative. I mean, you know, sometimes very positive myths, but then this was where the rubber met the road. And this is a memoir bait couched in that intersection.
1: Yeah. I mean, definitely. That's definitely one of the main underlying themes that goes throughout the whole book is that, I mean, it's, it's simplistic to say, but it's like, you just don't know until you know, you know, and then we, I think in every field, and I mean, it's like even, you know, kids who go to college for a job, you know, nothing's like the classroom, you know, when you, you actually get into the real world, it's completely different. It's, it's no different for grunts or people in the military. It's like, but I think that we have the, uh, I don't know, fortune or misfortune of we have all these movies and books that we can consume and we can build up this image of what exactly it's the experience is going to be like. And uh, yeah, it just you're never prepared for it. You know, you think you are, and then you just don't, you really just don't know until you know. And I think that's a lot of what the book is trying to get at, is that like we all create these images and these kind of fantasies of how our life's going to turn out. And it's just, it's it's either more grandiose or it's more horrifying than what you could ever imagine.
0: Do you think the myths, and I'm using that word loosely, but the, the kind of uh culture that we're steeped in, um, in many respects, as a young guy, do you think that's worthwhile? Do you think it's good? Do you think it's a net positive?
1: I think it's uh, regardless of if it's a net positive, it's unavoidable, you know, like uh, I've had people ask me if my book is anti-war or not. and I said it doesn't matter what I thought it is. you know, I used to watch Full Metal jacket when I was younger and think that it was a think that it looked awesome and i wanted to go on the marines you know so it doesn't mm. matter what my intentions were if this is anti-war or not because we're going to grab onto these stories and these characters and use them to our own purposes so i i think it's just an unavoidable fact to being a human
0: do you think it's necessary or let's not even use the word beneficial do you think it's necessary for especially young men and i only say young men because i've never been a young woman so i have no idea necessarily what that experience would entail. But for young men, do you think it's necessary to have those myths so that you do have kind of an, an incentive structure and a value structure that's that you're aspiring to in some way? Is that is that a necessary step to becoming a full, whole, complete man?
1: I mean, yeah, I think, and again, I think it's one of those, un, like, you can't avoid it. Like, when you're younger, you're just trying on different personalities and seeing which one is going to fit you, you know, you don't, because you don't have one of your own yet, you know, so you mm-hmm. you, you grasp for these characters and these stories, or even role models in your life, you're like, well, I'll just model my life after this person, you know, because they've walked the path before. And maybe that's something I can do, too. So it's just, Yeah, again, it's just one of those unnecessary things, and it's you know, there's I think there's a direct analogy also for writing in this because you when you first start writing, you just copy your heroes, you know, you you Mm -hmm. you just start you know you read a bunch of Cormac McCarthy and then you start having these Mm -hmm. huge sprawling dissertations about God and reality and stuff, and that's not really you, but you try it on for size, and then eventually you find yourself after you know years of going through it.
0: So I'll, I'll give some context to this next question. Um, I read your book in one sitting, and I was sitting in a diner in uh, Port Jervis, New York, which is a very blue-collar town. And I was sitting at a diner uh, that was – I'm not in Port Jervis. I was i was a visitor there, so I could kind of look at it with that detached eye of somebody that doesn't live there. And it was, it was a very popular local diner. Everybody there seemed to know each other and all that. And I'm completely speculating. Because I don't know who any of these people were. But when we we talk about the necessity of the myth and and myths for, for young men, it struck me because I teared up multiple times during your book. And I was like, I look like a fucking nut job in the middle of this diner while all these dudes are sitting around, a lot of construction workers, contractors, guys like that. And they're all talking and joking and all that. And then I'm over there trying not to sob occasionally. and it occurred to me that it's not inevitable that everybody grow up to take that war. Let's call it a warrior path. Um, You you talked about, I, I mean, I think one of the first moments that the book hit me upside the head was, I think your last line of the first chapter where you say to lead a, to live a life worth reading about. And I was like, you know, that's not everyone's aspiration. That's not inevitable. And that makes me wonder, um, and so that's kind of where I'm couching a lot of my questions about the myth is that, um, obviously you're describing the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it's, you're not trying to, you know, create a myth of your own. But it, I wonder how valuable it was to be steeped in that cultural picture about nobility and manhood and war and conflict, and that it allowed you to, survive make it through a warrior path and come out the other side not easily but an artist a writer somebody that has you know that now can kind of re-emerge like luke skywalker in in return of the jedi you know kind of wiser and now kind of more more common and, and and have and full of self-knowledge in a way that others can't in a way that when i looked around the diner and again, I'm completely speculating. They're probably, my luck, they're probably all like fucking Vietnam and Gulf War veterans. And I just <laughs> didn't know it. But my sense was, here were a lot of people that were very comfortable being contractors their whole lives or, or working manual labor jobs their whole lives. And we're like, yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. I don't really need anything else. And I think when you enlist, you choose a different path. So in that context, I guess that's where I'm asking, is it necessary? Is it something, is um, is it necessary for people to have those stories and for young men to have those stories to aspire to and to kind of um, have, have a, a cultural picture that they're trying to fit into and going, hey, this is what a man should be. So that however my, whatever turns my life takes, um, this is the value system I've kind of built up for myself to reenact or live or make my own in whatever way I can.
1: Yeah, I mean, so, you know, obviously the title, Freaks of a Feather, I mean, was trying to get at the fact that, like, we have all these particular kind of people that kind of came together, you know, or flocked together to be more on on the nose. Mm -hmm. But it seemed like we were all the same. In many ways, we were so similar, even though we came from all these different places. And it was like we were a certain type of person. And I don't know. That's still a concept I'm kind of like rolling around and working with. But it's it just seemed like didn't matter if I was from Pasadena or Spangle, Washington. Like, there was this kind of person that had this strain of romanticism, whether that's. And I think that, I mean, I don't know if that's, you know, because of the, you know, growing up in America or if that's just a strain of humanity that there's certain people that have this predisposition for. Because, I mean, it's, you know, like I say in the book too, like, this is nothing new. We've been doing this forever, you know, Mm -hmm. And, and we just we're a certain type of person that I don't know if wires are crossed or maybe they're wired the right way, but this it's the thought of not doing something like this is excruciating. You know what I mean? Like the thought of just living this nine to five, which is funny because that's what I'm doing now, but you know, as a young man, though, right. no, it's right. like, it's excruciating. You're like, I can't, I can't stay here. I can't do this. I, there's a war going on. I have no choice. You know,
0: do you regret your time in the Marines? Is there any sense of regret?
1: Um, no, there's not. You know, yeah. there just there isn't, you know, there, I yeah, it's difficult, you know, when you go back and you look at why we went to Iraq and stuff, and you're like, oh, it was all bullshit. That's great, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, you gotta bring yourself back to that 17, 18 year old kid. I didn't give a shit mm-hmm. what was what was really going on in Iraq. What I cared about is that there was a war going on and I I had to go fight it. You know, I had no choice. And so it's. I think it's unfair to old Casey to be like, yeah, you know, this is politically, this was pointless. What well, you know it was all bullshit. But I, that would that wouldn't be fair. You know, like I got, I got what I asked for. I guess It's a different way of saying it. Do you
0: think it was all bullshit? Do you believe that?
1: I don't know. It's hard to, you know the the reasons why they said we went to Iraq. You know, it's hard mm-hmm. to kind of marry those up with reality and it didn't seem like we found any wmds or there was no actual connection to iraq and al-qaeda so it's it's you kind of like well what do you say there you know i think once but again you know once you're there it does, nothing matters right none of that stuff matters so uh i think once once we created the shit storm that we did create then, yeah, there was a lot of terrorists there and bad guys. But, I mean, who knows how much of that was us, how much of that was them. It just – it's difficult, you know.
0: It is difficult. And I'm i am not trying to go down um, a geopolitical rabbit hole necessarily. I guess the reason I bring it up is, you know, at the end of the book, and I'm – I hope I'm not giving spoilers. But I guess I am, but I feel like this is something that is not going to discourage anybody from reading the book and probably would encourage people. Um, at the end of the book, when you have some suicidal ideations and there's, you know some some you know a lot of significant tectonic plates shifting in your in your psyche at that point. Um, one of the things that's come to me and, and came out a little in your book, but I'm also conflating it with the veteran community at large, is a sense of worthwhile endeavor. That hey it you know because I'm hearing this about Afghanistan certainly heard it about Iraq it wasn't a worthwhile endeavor And so that leads to it because well what was the you know wh- I can't point at the scoreboard and go hey but it was all worth it because we won the game and there we go and that can justify a lot and when there's no external proof of the virtue and nobility of the cause I think that causes a lot of you know self doubt and can lead people down a dark path and. And so that's why I asked that as as kind of a leading question, you know, as as to whether or not you think it was worthwhile. And I can give my opinion, but that's not really as important as I think what you think and how you feel about it when you look back at that time. And um, it seems like you've kind of made peace with it regardless.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just the reason
0: why we're there,
1: it becomes irrelevant to me. You know, eventually when you start what matters is how we acted when we were there, you know, it matters that, did I freeze? Did I not freeze? Um, did, did I do my job and that, you know, did I, did I take care of my friends and my friends take care of me? And that's, you know, that gets down to that primal, you know, tribal thing. of like, yeah, we did it, you know? So we conducted ourselves like, like we should have one of the, one of
0: the great, um, well, I mean, it's not a great part of the book. It's you, it's your life. Um, I, what I love about you as a character in your own book is that you're not a, uh, you're not a dispassionate observer sitting back, noting things. Um, you were kind of a fucking savage. I mean, yeah, you were there, I mean, you were there for the fight and you, and you loved the brawling and you, I mean, fighting in the barracks and all that stuff. And you know, you were there for it.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, that's, it was funny that, um, the article I had, um, published in the New York times, you know, they, they screwed up the title and they gave it some horrific shit. Like the day my Marine unit lost its innocence. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, guys, uh, we weren't innocent. You know what I mean? I was not innocent. I'm not an innocent person. I was there to fight. I was there to kill. Um, that's exactly what I signed up to do. So to paint, and I hope it doesn't come off as I'm trying to create some kind of victim status with my book. That's not, not what I'm trying to do at all. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was, I was all about the Marine Corps. I like 100% drank the Kool-Aid and was in this to win it. You know, like that was, I was, I felt at the time, like I, it was one of those feelings, those rare feelings in life where like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be right now. Like this is exactly who I am and where I'm supposed to be.
0: So again, the danger of me having read the book and the danger of you having written the book so well is that I feel like I I've, I've, i don't have as many questions to ask. So I'm just, just going to kind of converse and do a little bit more talking than I normally would because I feel like I just need to have a cup of coffee with you and talk about some general themes about this stuff. So being in the arts world to the extent that I am now, I could hear in the back of my head while I was reading your book a lot of folks that I know in the arts world who would be sitting there wringing their hands, gnashing their teeth, renting their garments over, um, oh, God, this guy, he's you know become uh, you know, a tool of the machine and all this, and boy, he's eloquent and coming to terms with it. But they would definitely be looking at it all as a sad, tragic experience. I know how I feel about that reading the book. How do you feel about it if you had to characterize just your service for people that don't have a vocabulary for understanding the military service.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the struggle I had was just, uh, trying to, trying to just live in the normal world again. You know, that was one yeah. of the biggest problems I had because I, I did feel like I was this, you know what I mean? This, as you said, like this in this machine and I felt, I felt good to be a cog in the war machine. It really did. You know, and trying to get out of that and become a normal human again is that was where my struggle came. But, I mean, my service it really what it gave me though is the great gift is like there's nothing I can't do. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? There's nothing, there's no shit that's gonna come at me in the civilian world that's gonna overwhelm me now. You know, like I've I've been through some real dark shit and I came out the other side. So I have, you know, I don't know if it's if callous is the right word or mm-hmm. you know, just it's you're not gonna get me now. You know what I mean? And that's yeah that's one of the things I take from the service is just that, you know, you can just keep throwing shit at me and I'm going to keep walking through it. So I, I think it's a gift. I really do.
0: Would you be the writer that you are now forget about subject matter, but just skill wise, emotionally, um, kind of the soul of an artist. Would you have that now? If you hadn't been in the Marines and done what you had done?
1: Honestly, I it's, I don't know. I really don't know. I think that I, I could have still, you know, with enough work put together a good sentence and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it, your life experience flavors your, your art. You know, there's there's no way around that. The analogy I've been working with is like, you know, writing's kind of like making sausage. You know, you've got a big meat grinder and you just start throwing stuff in it. You've got the books that you've read. You've got your life experience. You've got what you're actually trying to do. And it all just goes into this fucked up meat grinder and then what comes out the other side is hopefully something digestible. But the real seasoning, I feel like, is your life experiences. And that's what's going to make your art different. So, I I mean, I I don't think I would be the same writer without it.
0: If you had stayed in the Marines, either as a careerist or if even if you had gone, done something else, transitioned to a different service, different MOS, something enlisted, but kept your career going. And tried to stretch for a full twenty. What would that look like? What would that have looked like now? And what what kind of person would you be? And what would your life be like?
1: I doubt. I doubt my marriage would have survived. Mm -hmm. I really doubt that. Um, I know I was definitely at that time too. Like my, I had almost no aversion to risk whatsoever. You know, so uh, I worry about or I think about what that would look like with more combat deployments you know what i mean would i would i even still be around because yeah after that like the only thing the only reason why i got out is because um uh my wife got pregnant you know what i mean i I guess i should use the active voice i got my wife pregnant um was not this divine thing but uh uh i wanted i wanted to stay in and like my as you read in the book like the unit went to afghanistan after that and that's Still to this day, that's one of my biggest regrets of my life is not going with those guys. And I think had I done that, I I would have just kept going and kept going and kept going as as long as they would have let me. So I don't I don't know what that does to a human, you know, in the long term, but probably wouldn't have been the best.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's um God, there were so many parts of the book that were relatable and i and i loved that you gave voice to some moments that i think so many folks have felt and have never had the vocabulary for and i say that because one of the the ideas that kept coming to me while i was reading the book is when you talked about the books the movies et cetera, that you had seen that it inspired you filled you up with these visions of heroism manhood whatever um Something I've kept thinking about was, you know, for the GWAT generation, there was no vocabulary for war. Our vocabulary went back to Vietnam, but that was a different service member. And that was a different war with different stakes, people that were drafted, what have you. And I wonder if, not I wonder, I believe that what you wrote serves as an incredibly valuable guidepost to give voice to a a message about war and manhood and myth and legend and all that that is of this generation or of the most recent generation. Um, Did you feel that, especially when you were transitioning out, that you were looking around, you know, there's, there might not be any songs that are going to speak to that experience. It's kind of like going through a breakup, but there's no good breakup songs on the radio. It's like, Mm -hmm. there's no vocabulary for, for what we went through in the GWAT that we have to reach back and it's like, yeah, but it's CCR is not the right thing. Fogarty wasn't talking about my generation, you know, like it's not, it's yeah. not. And as a result, I feel like a lot of veterans try to shoehorn their GWAT experience through the Vietnam lens, but it's like, it's, it's not the same. It's, it's a square peg in a round hole. I feel, how do you feel though? I mean, does that, it, it, does any of that resonate with you? And do you feel like you've, I, cause I feel like you've made a contribution to, to change that and add a, a, an important voice that people can relate to and associate with coming out of the GY.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're of the same mind on this. Like people, one of my professors gave me the things they carried, you know, Yeah. and it's a great book, you know what I mean? But I read it. I'm like, this isn't us, you know, like this guy, he wasn't there for the fight. He wasn't, this isn't about volunteers, you know, like (laughs) it's beautiful prose. I love it. That kind of shit. But I'm like, this doesn't really apply to me. You know, it doesn't really apply to my friends so that's one of those things. Like, well, I guess you got to make it if it's not out there in the world. You know, you got to kind of do it yourself. Yeah. So, yeah, that's one of the motivations for the book.
0: Yeah. So, le- so let's um, let's talk about the mechanics of the book. How long did it take to write it?
1: I mean, the little pieces of the book and putting it all together. I mean, it's probably a ten-year process.
0: Okay. What was what was the battle rhythm like when you were writing it? Was this something you kind of chipped away at every day? Was it something you'd visit occasionally? Like what how, to, how what was the process like?
1: Yeah, when I was in when I was in writing mode, it's like I do a thousand words a day, you know, mm-hmm. just doesn't matter. I just lock myself in the room until I get a thousand. Most of them suck. And then uh, you know, go back, you know, steal one sentence or one paragraph from that and then try to put it together it started as I just was just writing scenes and just writing individual things. And I hadn't put it into an actual like, right. collective narrative. Mm-hmm. So I had all these different pieces around. And then it was like 2017, I got a job as a train conductor on the railroad. And so I was away from home all the time. And so that's when I decided. I'm like, okay, you have these little chunks. Let's redo this, start at the beginning and tell the entire story again. And then that shit got crazy because I was all by myself in these hotel rooms, you know, so I would get, you know, five to 10,000 words a day, kind of a thing, you know, and uh, started putting it all together. And then I had a, a complete linear story at the end of that. And then from there, I, I tried to see if maybe I, I should do some kind of like Quentin Tarantino thing and mix up the storyline and that kind of right. stuff, I'm like what, the timeline. And the only thing I I decided to do, um, which, you know, with the help of some advice, was to put that book clubbing chapter in the beginning. That's really the only kind of timeline thing I changed up at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it is, uh, it, it, I think it hit me when you had the chapter on, um, God, why am I blanking on his name? The guy, guy, it was a fucking heartbreaking story. Um, the guy whose first name you didn't know. And then you say goodbye to Alonzo. Alonzo. Yeah, uh, and that's a hell of a fucking chapter. Um, That's when it hit me. I was like, shit, he's got an an episodic story, but it's not reading like an episodic story. And that's incredibly hard to do, Uh, especially kind of unpacking all these experiences um, and not making it seem quite so scenic, but making it flow together. And I felt like it was because the theme, you were really... um, Diligent, I think, about threading the theme of Uh, myth—that's my word, not yours—I think—but but but threading that throughout the story, so it made it seem cohesive. I thought that was a real triumph because, yeah, like you, I've read a lot of non-fiction memoir-ish books about war, and it's like, okay, a lot of them are great, but it's it's episodic, and this Mm -hmm. flowed in, and it took me a while to go, oh yeah, well he's doing episodic, but it it was really a, a tight narrative and we really felt like we were on a journey not just watching and now then this happened and now this happened and now this happened mm-hmm. it really was a journey um there's no question there I'm just complimenting you um that yeah. just really was a hell of a thing oh, thanks man I appreciate
1: that it's a lot of it too is like I try each chapter and I think each piece of writing that I do I try to make it its own complete thing like I want to be able to if you took this book and you cut it up cut up the chapters, each chapter you could read alone and be satisfied that you heard a full story in the chapter, you know. But then throughout that, like you said, you have that thread, and that's where you have to have. That's when you go. That's the revision process. That's when you you you've done your rough drafts and you see that like, oh, there are these themes hiding in each one of these stories, and now it's time to kind of bring each of those out more and flush them out so that the, you do have this this thread that weaves through all your different
0: chapters. How do you feel about yourself as an editor? Um, did you feel like you enjoyed the editing process? Did you feel like you had a talent for divorcing yourself enough to be able to come back to the material with fresh eyes?
1: I mean, I think I think I'm better at the I'm getting better at like the copy editing stuff. You know, mm-hmm. I'm uh I'm in law school right now and I'm doing this like this horrific uh law review work where I just edit these legal um Articles and it's it's helped me because I just don't give a shit about the material at all. So I'm able to I'm able to read the sentences and just focus on the sentences and just do copy editing stuff. Yeah. So that's helped me out a lot. But I think I'm pretty I'm pretty good at that. uh That more like I guess I don't know if you call it, like thirty thousand feet view of seeing where things line up and match and how I kind of have to shift some things around to make these things line up. I think I'm okay at that. But I will say that like. I think this is probably true for most writers: is that the the initial creation part? That's where the, like the real joy and the real yeah. rush comes from. And then the editing process—that's like actual work. You know, that's like all right, time to sit down and do some work. It's not this like this like endorphin rush that you get when you're actually writing the first draft.
0: Right. Am I right? The bulk of the writing then happened when you were a train conductor and when you were able to be by yourself.
1: Um. I mean. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I had okay. I had scattered chapters throughout that I've been working on. And some yeah. of the same chapters I've been working on for years, you know, the same story I've been working on and chiseling away at for years. But it wasn't until that like 2017 train conductor era where I was like, that's I guess, yeah, I would say that. That's where the bulk of it came through.
0: Okay. Did you find that did you find you were easy to live with while you were getting that done? I mean, did you find it was easier to not Be around people that you would become withdrawn or antisocial or all that because you're mining a lot of stuff in your past and it's, you're kind of in that mode to put it out on the page. And so it's kind of hard to be around you. This is me projecting, but in my experience, Mm -hmm. that's kind of how I get. So I'm just wondering how related, if, if that's common or if I'm just an outlier uh
1: you know. Luckily, I just wasn't around people, so I guess yeah, I, don't, I didn't really yeah. know. Like, even on the train, there's only two dudes on there. You know what I mean? And then the conductor right. gets out, and he's all by himself hooking up trains and stuff. So I really was pretty isolated. Yeah. Um. But I, I do think I'm actually easier to live with when I am writing. Um. Because I, when I'm not writing, I'm I don't have that outlet. I kind of that's when I withdraw into myself you know what I mean that's when I kind of just hide inside myself and don't don't communicate well I don't know if it's just the I'm tired from the like that kind of happy exhaustion from writing that then I'm able to kind of be more relaxed but I know my wife definitely said once I started like yeah don't ever stop that because you're a fucking prick when you don't do that so
0: Got you. Was there ever a consideration to not write it as memoir? Did you ever toy with the idea of going, Hey, this is, maybe I've got enough grist for the mill that I could write a really killer piece of fiction right now. Or it was there, was that ever a thought?
1: Oh yeah. That was the first thought. That was the first thought. Um, Yeah. So the first, the first like version of this thing was a novel, you know, and it was this kind of this, I mean, I was very similar, very you know, autobiographical, but it was more about there was like a murder involved and all sorts of stuff. Like it was, but I wanted to. It was easier at that time in my life to write fiction because it was. It allowed me the distance to still write, but not actually have to deal with my own shit a lot, you know. And then, uh, and then it was I took uh, my undergrads in creative writing. So, um, and then my professor Rachel Tour, she's a nonfiction person, you know, and that's when I really started getting exposed to this high level nonfiction. Yeah. And that's when I was really like made the decision, like, yes, I mean, novels are super powerful, but for for me and my money, like the power of a, you know, nonfiction memoir can be immense because you at the end of the day, you have to stop and say this shit really happened to this person. This is a real story. And, uh, I thought that, uh, I just thought that it would be more powerful as a memoir than it would be a novel
0: um yeah do you have more um do you have more from that time period do you have other stuff that you want to write from that time period before i get to what other stuff you might write in the future is is there still are there still some rocks left to uncover um from your time in the marines yeah
1: well uh we talked about tim o'brien earlier and there's a part in his book when he's I think it's his daughter asked him if he's going to write anything other than war stories. And he's, mm-hmm. he just, then he comes to the realization that he's been telling the same story is forever. You know, yeah. I, I can see that I can see in one form or another, it's always going to circle back to this because obviously this is, this you know, black hole of energy in my life that I think about all the time anyway. So it's, it'll be almost impossible to keep it out of my work, but yeah, there's definitely stories like the, the main, the original manuscript was a lot bigger than the book. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of, there's a lot of chapters that got cut out and a lot of stories that got cut out, which I think maybe would be more proper for standalone essays, yeah, that kind of stuff. So I think I'd like to work on some of that. Too.
0: Kind of creative nonfiction essays. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't doubt it. I can just imagine how much meat was left on the bone after, after mm-hmm. all that. So, I, I'm I'm gonna jump around a little, but I just want to pick up on what you said. I forgot that you're in law school, and I got to ask how that's going because I think there's a lot of writers who whose assholes pucker the second they hear law school because it's like, oh my god, the death of my writing will happen there. You know, how's that? How's that treating you? How, and and it, do you feel any effect on your skill set as a writer being in law school? I mean.
1: I don't know yet because I haven't tried anything truly creative. Um, The only thing I've written in law school that wasn't law related was some book reviews, which I think turned out all right, you know, but uh, Mm. I haven't really sat down to write something truly, you know, my own and creative again, since I started. So I'm obviously a little nervous about that, you know, (laughs) Um, but at the same token though, like, What it is is you as a writer, you're put into this box now, right? And then you have to create the best material that you can with it's like a game, essentially, to me. It's like, all right, these are the parameters. How do I write really well with these shackles on? You know what I mean? Can I still write compelling and can I still do that in the legal world? So I'm like, Yes, I still can do that. And I can still write a narrative, but now I'm just telling the story of the law as they apply to the as they apply to the facts. So it's not I don't think it's a death sentence to your writing, but you'll have to check back in with me if I ever write anything <laughs> worth the shit again. But uh like I said, it does it definitely does help the copy editing because yeah, yeah, everything's got a microscope on it.
0: We are gonna I'm gonna try to do some proper advertising for the book by asking you about it and and get some big brush strokes and sell the sizzle, not the steak kind of thing about the book. But before we do, I just want to satisfy my own curiosity. Can we talk a little bit about you after the book? So when you got out of the Marines, you started working construction jobs, right? And that was kind of when you're readjusting back to civilian life and figuring out who you are in the civilian world. What happened after the construction jobs?
1: Yeah, so the construction jobs... It kind of dried up. And then my brother and I decided to, in a kind of a random turn, we started a barbecue catering company. So we had, uh, uh, we drove down to, it was Mississippi. We picked up a big, uh, it was a 40 foot long barbecue trailer. We brought it back to Washington and uh, we just, we made barbecue since 2013. And then I finally quit. Um, I couldn't do law school and the catering business at the same time. So I ended up quitting that in 2001 and just I sold my half of the business to my brother for a dollar and he's still doing it right now. But I mean, it was a good trip, man. We were on, uh, it was pretty hilarious. We were on diners, drive-ins and dives, like uh, (laughs) making barbecue. So we had Guy Fieri come out to tiny ass Spangle, Washington, which was pretty hilarious. Uh, But yeah, so I focused a lot of energy on that because, but the kind of the mystery kind of went away for me with the barbecue stuff. Like I'd figured out, how to cook all the meat, which is kind of an art and a science of its own for barbecue. So I had kind of like unlocked that kind of stuff. And it wasn't, it wasn't intellectually challenging for me anymore. Cause I was just like, well, I figured out the menu, everybody loves it, but it's the same every single time. So then I was kind of after more of a, one, I don't want to be poor. So that's why I was like law school could work out for that. Um, but two, I just was like, I, I kind of wanted something. I have to have a day job, some kind of intellectually challenging job. So I was like, you know, law school could work for that.
0: That's a hell of a um, stretch. Let's let me start with the. um, With figuring out things, do you feel like any of that also relates to your time in the Marine Corps that you kind of done your grunt time? You weren't a pogue. You'd seen you'd gone right into the shit. I was like, hey, fun meters pegged four years, man, I got it. I got it. I figured it out. I, I'm not going to get a better look at war than that. Bitchin', uh I mean, What else do you want to learn in the military? The paperwork. I mean, there's what else is there? Time to move on. Is is was is that at all accurate to how you felt getting out?
1: You know, it's funny. I never really thought about it like that, but that's it's probably pretty accurate. And that, but which is kind of ridiculous because every combat deployment is going to be entirely different. You're going to totally. learn all sorts of new stuff. But you know, you're a, a you think you're a two deployment salt dog and you're like, I'm the saltiest motherfucker who's ever lived. Like I, what else do I need to learn? Even though these just, you almost know nothing. But uh, yeah, I think that's probably pretty accurate. And I I've always just thrown myself into whatever with reckless abandon. Like if I'm going to do something, I'll just, I'm all in, you know what I mean? I'll go, I don't know, probably some kind of mental disorder I imagine, but uh, I'll just, I'll be completely focused on it and just, all of my efforts go towards that one objective.
0: So yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good mental disorder to have. Um, so, can't think of a less rude way of asking this, but why didn't you throw yourself fully into writing if you're going to leave the catering business? I know it's a lucrative field where everyone becomes a millionaire, you know, within three years. But I mean, <laughs> outside of that, I mean, w- um, was that a consideration? Um, just what was the process, thought process? Yeah, it was a consideration.
1: Um, And it's something I I definitely, that's the dream is to just write full time for a living. That's really the dream. But I've got a wife and two kids. So you kind of have to have There's dream world and then there's reality world. And the reality world is I got two kids that need to go to college and, you know, I got people to feed and that kind of stuff. So I needed, uh, I'm sure you've read that uh, Stephen King's on writing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He talks about like having a day job, you know what I mean? In case shit doesn't work out. So that's why I'm kind of trying to set myself up with the lawyer gig to have a day job, but the, hopefully the writing can take off and kind of help me leave leave the rest of it behind.
0: Have you factored in where writing will fit into your life and your pattern of life going forward? Is it something that you're like, hey, I got to do this five minutes a day just to keep everything well oiled? Or is it the type of thing where you're like, ah, hopefully I got a free weekend here and there and maybe I can sit down and try to bang something out? Or at least sketch out some ideas.
1: Yeah, so it's definitely something that's always on my mind. And uh, I had originally gotten a job at this big-ass law firm in Spokane. Um, They were going to hire me after I passed the bar. But that kind of started to terrify me because that's kind of like a – that's like just a work mill, like a sweatshop essentially Mm -hmm. for these lawyers. And essentially they just like – they have these super high billable hours that they have to meet every year. So essentially it consumes your life. And uh, I was able to see an exit. There's a a new firm that started. It's a smaller firm uh, with a lot of veterans in the firm, too. It's only like seven Mm. people. Right. Mm. But it's the, the structure is kind of you you eat what you kill, you know, so like there's no minimum requirements. It's I'll get paid what I put into the job. So it'll allow me a little more freedom to kind of structure my life to. Include more writing and include more like actual living and not just being chained to a desk doing legal work. What kind of law is it? Uh, they do all sorts of civil litigation. Um, they do both defense and plaintiff's work. Um, so uh, both suing big companies and protecting big companies. So It'll be nice to be on both sides. and kind of see what I like to do. They also do a lot of USERA uh, stuff, which is the like veteran discrimination stuff. So mm-hmm. uh, it'll be really cool to get into that and maybe help some vets out along the way.
0: I want to back up to uh, to the book and talk about uh, this kind of the wave tops of the book for a second, but I also want to pick on one thing you said uh, that I thought that I could relate to when you talked about uh, joining the Marines and suddenly you had to transform your speech, and you were the kind of guy that used to love to throw polysyllabic words around, and <laughs> that you, you picked up, and even if they didn't totally make sense, it was that kind of quirky erudition. And, and then suddenly you had to drop that in the Marines. And as someone that has lovingly embraced polysyllabic words since I got out and refused to back down off it, uh, mm-hmm. that, that struck a, a nerve with me. Do you feel like you've recovered? Do you feel like you want to recover? How's that process been?
1: I don't think I ever want to fully recover. You know, I think that's, and I think that's beneficial for like, my career going forward and anything like that. Cause, cause I can, I can go to the stockyard and go talk to the dudes out there and we can, we can converse on that, you know, that F word level that, uh, they like to communicate. And so I think it's nice too, because it, like yourself too, like it flavors everything. Right. So you can be talking about, you know, like Walt Whitman and the transcendental transcendentalists and what fucking weirdos they were and that kind of stuff. And like, you can, you can tell this kind of higher level literary stuff, but with that kind of Marine flair and it's uh, i think it works.
0: Yeah, it, it works. It works or it completely backfires. What I've found is I can, I can alienate both communities very quickly, <laughs> 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 but yeah, at its best it can work. And, and then, and then it kind of is, is also satisfying. Um, let's, let's give folks a little bit of taste of the book. Um, For you, what was the biggest, let's just talk about when you became a Marine. Let's just talk about the moment that you made it through boot camp or even SOI, because you do spend a lot of time talking about SOI and, and, you know, the cultural difference now becoming an infantryman. How did you feel? Did you feel fulfilled?
1: Yeah. The only thing that um, was alarming to me is I was looking at some of the people that also made it through and became Marines. I'm like, Hey, they weren't supposed to make it through. You know, like I thought this was the great, you know what I mean? The funneling process where we would get rid of a lot of these people and they just made it through and became Marines. So that was the first time I was like, Oh shit, are these guys going to combat with me too? You know? like yeah. Yeah. So that was a little, that was a little jarring. Um, but for the most part, I just, I was all in, you know what I mean? I just was like, I bought into everything. Like the, the way that the Marine Corps, you know, Structures itself with stories is so masterful because for a person like me, it was like I was entering into this whole different world with its own mythology. And like I could, you know, it's like you can pick your champion, your demigod that you're going to try to model yourself after, like John Bassalone or something. Like You just pick your saint and put it in front of you and worship that person. Yeah. And uh, it just for me at that age, this was it was everything for me. I'm like, this is exact. This is everything, you know. Yeah.
0: I mean, army obviously didn't have anywhere near the, the uh, internal mythology of the Marine Corps, but I, I'll never, I mean, that, that was the the big banner above the recruiter when I enlisted said, uh, uh, don't read history, make history. And I was like, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. That fuck sounds yeah. Up pretty well. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm here for that. Um, so that, that totally, uh, tracks for you. Talk about how much you relish the violence. Cause it seems like you did. Was that accurate? Because there's also that gunslinger weariness where you're like, son of a bitch, I got to keep fighting, keep brawling and keep proving myself, yeah. you know, every step of the way. Um, talk a little bit about that and what that transition was like now being a Marine and having to fight all the time. Uh, I just,
1: again, it was that huge endorphin rush and, you know what I mean, adrenaline push. And I just loved it. And I guess it always helps when you actually win a little bit, you know what I mean? I so yeah. It I gets really tiring when
0: you don't win. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, I think
1: it would have been a different experience if I would have got my ass kicked right off the bat. But I had some success and was winning and winning and winning. So I was like, oh, I'm clearly the baddest motherfucker who's ever lived. And then you run into someone who's clearly a bigger badass than you. And that's, that's a good lesson for life is that there's always somebody out there who's going to kick your ass. Uh, but I just... It felt, it also felt like that's what I'm supposed to be doing. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm in the Marine Corps, like, yeah, I'm supposed to be getting involved. I'm supposed to be like, I'm just doing what those who have gone before me have done. So this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing.
0: At the risk of playing amateur psychiatrist, um, but you talk about it in the book, how, look, I was a chubby kid when I was young. There's a lot of satisfaction in going, yeah, but now I'm just a big motherfucker, yeah. And I'm packed with muscle, and I can be violent, and I can smash. That's got to be incredibly satisfying.
1: Oh yeah, I mean that's yeah. There's all sorts of Freudian stuff going on there. You know what I mean? And subconscious stuff of like, oh yep, yeah, now it's my time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm finally, I'm finally arrived.
0: Yeah, I'm so a fully actualized person. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's like everybody's on notice now.
0: <laughs> uh I think one of the things you you convey in the book is the the pain the anguish i would even say of not having a combat deployment and being around combat veterans when you fr- get to your first duty station um walk us through a little bit of that cuz that to me was um something very relatable and something i think a lot you'll get a lot of head nods about um but just what was that like in getting hazed by guys who you really respected but being acutely aware you are not part of the fraternity yet
1: Yeah, it was, it was, it was literally everything I thought about. You know what I mean? Like I would think about, I'd even meet some of these senior Marines. I'm like, I feel like I could kick your ass. You know what I mean? But uh, I don't have this intangible thing that you have being in combat. So I'm less than, even though I might even be a more competent Marine than this person. You know what I mean? But you, in your head at that time, you're just like, it's all that matters. It's all that matters. And you again you you place these people on this pedestal that there's no possible way that they can live up to you know what i mean
0: yeah but yeah uh,
1: and then this is all adding to this you fantasizing about war and thinking about like well soon it'll be my time i just have to i just have to grit and bear it for right now and then it'll be my time eventually and so that's why it's like i don't know i'm sure people read the book and, and be thankful that they didn't go to combat you know but uh I just feel incredibly fortunate that I just, by the roll of the dice, I got to do what I signed up to do. And, uh, I've, I feel, I don't know, like some of the Marines that didn't get to go, that were in at the same time as me. Like I, I really feel for them because there will, there will always be this unknown, you know, because at the end of the day, you don't know until you're under fire. Like you do not know how you're going to react. And I saw, you know, Guys that I thought would react positively freeze. You know what I mean? And you just don't know. You just don't know until you know, I guess.
0: It's funny. So I'm talking to you the same week that I uh, did our show with Ben Cantwell, um, who I don't know if you know Ben, but uh, he's the artist, marine. right? Yeah, the artist. Yeah. yeah. And And he was one of those guys who, like you, was standing there at the end of, I guess, SOI, listening to where his initials were going to get him sent. And whereas the first letter of his last name is going to get him sent and then ended up doing his years and two non-combat deployments and was like "I do," and then he's going to get promoted. And so it was like, well, now I'm just going to be in the back anyway, doing paperwork and it just doesn't make sense anymore. And that deep sense of unrequited, I don't know if bloodlust is the right word, but, but because it, it's could not, be. I don't mean it could be, I, I also don't mean yeah. to demean it as just kind of like a sociopathic urge. It's like, it, you know, I did the chance to never really have tested yourself, despite having ticked all the right boxes, done everything yeah. you can, but being at the mercy of this bureaucracy. Um, I thought that was probably the best portrayal, not probably, it was the best portrayal I've ever read of the anguish of sitting there waiting to hear if you're going to get the chance to maybe do something meaningful and actually get the experiences that you want to get out of it if you hadn't gotten that if your name had started with a c or some other letter and you hadn't gotten the assignment you got it and and the dice had turned the other way do you think that how do you think that would have changed your life do you think you would have stayed in longer do you think you would have been pissed off disillusioned do you have any idea how that would have played out for you
1: i think it would have been all of the above but i think i would have stayed in and done anything i could to finally go to the dance whatever form that may have been you know uh i don't think i could have I don't think I could have separated without that. Um, But again, it's still, it's all luck of the draw. Like when I went to uh, a machine gunner course and one of the instructors who was a sergeant getting close to being a staff sergeant had never been to combat. You know what I mean? And it wasn't anything he did, you know, it just was, that's where they told him to go. And I didn't even know that. And there was like, we were picking up brass and I was like, yeah, if you haven't been to Iraq, you got to go police call. And the, the instructor was like, what did you just say? I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, Lance Corporal Telson with his foot in his mouth.
0: That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely a moment. Um, do you think you're still a savage? Is that part ever left you, really? Is there still a little part of you that enjoys violence, enjoys, you know, smashing a little bit? oh
1: yeah i mean i 100 that's just i mean i one of the things i try to talk about in the book is that you just have all these different selves inside of you mm-hmm. at all times you know what i mean and you because you you do become different people at different times but i don't think they ever go away you know so i have to do stuff now to kind of like i'm not a good runner but i, I like to run a lot so i'll go out and just i have to like be in pain and go run Atrocious amounts of miles because it's like I'm feeling something. You know what I mean? I'm getting this pain. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm doing I feel like I'm doing something fucked up that nobody else is doing, even though there's millions of people that run, obviously. But I'm like, I'm doing this, you can't do this. Like I'm in pain. I'm better than you because of that pain. Uh yeah. so I don't know what where that is, what that comes from, but I definitely still have that. I mean, I try to temper my drinking as much as possible. But that's when things can kind of, your masks, different masks can start to slip if you drink too much and that kind of, and that's, you know, I got into trouble when I got out just because that would happen too. It's like, I could keep everything bottled up inside, but then I get completely stone cold whiskey drunk. And now I just want to fight everybody. I want to get violence. I want to, you know what I mean? Drive my car too fast, do everything. So it's still there. And I just have to be very cognizant because it's, uh, it's there and it's always ready to fuck up my life. So I have to like, uh, I just have to be aware that it's still there. You
0: know, we don't have to go down this a whole lot if you don't want, but I'm curious since you're incredibly articulate about your emotions and your mind state, why is that? Why is that still there? I mean, by all rights, you should have had your fun meter pegged and been like, yeah, been there, done that. And maybe it never leaves me, but. What's left there? What, what 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 is there left to prove? What is there left to experience? Because I feel like you might have, in a conscious level, at least figured out violence to an extent that you're like, yeah, I'm good. I know what that's like.
1: You know, that's super interesting. And I think it, it may possibly be traced all the way back to that growing up as a bad kid thing. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter what I do. I have some some kind of inferiority complex or something you know what I mean Mm. I think that's maybe part of the driving factor well also too, like being a a big dude you know what I mean I'm covered in tattoos like everybody assumes I'm a dumb ogre you know what I mean and people have done that with me pretty much my whole life and so I've always felt that I have to prove myself that I'm not an idiot or something like that yeah so both I have to both prove that I'm not a pussy and that I'm not an idiot and I don't know why that doesn't go away, but it just mm. doesn't, you know? So part of going to law school is like, I need to show people that I'm not a moron when I don't, but a who to who, I don't know.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe but it's that still-
1: little fat kid that's still in there. That's like, that's yeah. what I'm talking to.
0: Yeah. No, no. I, we, and we all have it. We all have that. That's incredibly relatable. Do you still hate officers?
1: I have some officers that are friends now, you know, I'm starting to, I'm starting to think that maybe I had like an atypical experience and that maybe officers aren't as shitty as the ones I had, you know, I don't know, but I've heard other people like talk fondly of their officers. I'm like, Oh, you had a positive experience, like a single positive experience. (laughs) Like I'm trying to find one and I can't really, you know, it, it becomes like this, uh, it's like this aristocracy versus the peasant kind of mentality. And you're kind of like, you, it always bothered me. And it's probably some of that inferiority stuff is I'm like, all you did differently than me is go to college. You know what I mean? Like that's the great separation between the two of us. And why does that make you better than me? You know, like you endured lectures. That's the, that's the big, you know, dividing thing between us. And that always bothered me. And you know, what bothers me too? uh, Now I'm getting pissed off. Uh, you read some of these like officer memoirs and the way they talk about enlisted, like they'll call them like kids or children or something like that. Jesus, that pisses me off. I'm like, you, you're missing it. You know what I mean? Like, I realize that you think that that's how the situation is, but you're missing it because we're watching you just as much as you're watching us. And I don't know why that pisses me off so much, but Jesus, it makes me mad.
0: I'm trying to think right now. And I, I, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. I'm trying to even remember how many mentions there are in the book about officers. Like you were, I mean, you were kind of really living a parallel existence. It seemed like it seemed like there was not, I mean, not just there were bad officers, but it was like, they're, they're irrelevant. Like you're, you're on yeah. your own battle rhythm and they, they played no role in, in what you were going through. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: And again, I've heard that this is not typical, but like we weren't patrolling with officers. They were coming outside the wire with us. So it was like E5 and below out there whipping it on. And, you know, in many squads, the highest ranking guy was an E3. And it's just E3s out there running around like savages. So, you know, you not seeing the officers putting themselves in danger that left a horrible taste in my mouth. You know what I mean? Seeing upper staff NCOs not willing to lead the wire, like made me nauseous. You know what I mean? I'm like, you guys, you don't deserve the title of being a Marine because, you know what I mean? We're out there every single day doing this thing. And just, you look around, you know what I mean? You're like, where are the officers at? Well, they're in the FOB. You know what I mean? They're having Gatorade and shit like that. And so it just bothered me, you know? (laughs) But I've also, you know, I read books and I, I hear stories from other people and they say that, no, yeah, the lieutenants are out there with us all the time. That just wasn't my experience at all. So it's hard for me to relate to that.
0: One of the most, um, it's, I almost want to say taboo parts of the book because it's an experience that I think a lot of people can relate to on both sides of the equation, but it's something nobody ever really talks about is, um, when you talk about being on the fob, can't remember exactly where, and all the pogues are sitting around, and you feel them trying to get close, overhearing your stories while you guys are talking, and almost trying to pick up some reflected glory, being able to talk about hearing your stories. And um, I'm, I'm going to butcher uh, how you phrase it because you do phrase it incredibly eloquently. But you said something to the effect of pasting their faces on your experiences to get that sort of reflected glory at the VFW or back home or with mm. the girl that they love and all that, that, and there's a sense again, my words, not yours. So I'm not going to say this quite as eloquently, but uh that they had the same motivations, aspirations as you did, but you've now been outside the wire doing X, Y, and Z. And they're just sitting there at the defect chow hall, scooting close to you and trying to hear about it. And you talk openly about your disdain for Pogues. And then you get to that story about the first sergeant when you guys land the plane back in California and telling the, the Marine, hey, your, what, your blouse stinks or something like that. You smell, you got body odor and the guy just, and you say he looks back at him with the eyes of a killer and you just fucking hated Pogues from that moment. Did that ever change for you?
1: Yeah, I mean it did.
0: I fucking thankfully I calmed down a little bit
1: about that. But there, I mean there for a while, like you're on the Marine Corps base, there's no bad guys. You're know, like, well, I need somebody to hate. I'm gonna hate pogues. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah, yeah. Like I'm just going, I hate you people. Uh yeah. But then you start to realize that like obviously the machine breaks down without everybody helping right. You know what I mean? And then you can like I was close to being a pogue. I almost went uh I almost went uh, Intel route because it sounded interesting. And then I, you know, if you can go back and try to have some empathy, you could be like, well, you just made, and some people actually want life skills when they get out. You know what I mean? Like an actual trade or something, which is like a person might actually be smart. You know what I mean? So uh, just trying to just temper it a little bit. It's, I mean, I'll still get pretty fired up when people like, if someone's talking about a deployment or something like that, and then you find out that they, or supply clerk or something like that right and it, it can be i've been around some situations where i was catching people like like inflating their stories and doing this kind of stuff and that's always very uncomfortable for me because i'm like i don't want to get into a comfort well maybe i do i don't know but like i feel compelled to say something and it's going to cause a scene which is never good you know so i try to try to just avoid that kind of stuff but i actually had a guy at a bar one time lying about being in my unit in my company during the same time because he was an mp in hawaii during the our same time there so he just thought i'll pick a random you know company in this yeah. battalion and i'll be fine and i i was this was like pretty fresh getting out you know and i i I just told him, like i don't know what would happen i just told him like if you don't leave i'll kill you you know what i mean like you'll die yeah. right here and uh Thankfully that was a long time ago and I've calmed down a lot. But uh that kind of shit still just uh I mean bother, I don't know how it couldn't bother you.
0: Yeah. And, it, and it's weird because we talked about the anguish of not having a combat deployment or not going on a combat deployment. And to see it play out like that, it's like, oh, yeah, that's the dark path to go down. If you're yeah. feeling that anguish, then that's the that's the wrong way of going about doing it. But you get it. I get why it happens. It's like, yeah, why wouldn't it? Yeah, got it. I can see the temptation. Um, But it
1: seems to me like the thing to always do is just embrace it. You know what I mean? Embrace what you did. Be proud of what you did because it was super necessary and you fucking did a job that needed to be done and you should be proud of it. It's like just you can't those little white lies like they'll they'll kill you. They'll
0: kill you a hundred percent. But it also is a tell. Don't you think that if you're feeling the need to say that? What did you leave on the table? What mm-hmm. was what was unsatiated about your experience? and and what regrets are you carrying with it? And I say that especially when you look at the suicide statistics now where I forget what the numbers are, but the overwhelming majority are non-combat veterans. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, I wonder how much that plays into it where there's a sense of regret or a sense of missed opportunity or a sense of um, that there's there is a satisfaction with knowing when going, when the the rounds were flying, I know what I did. And I know, and I did what I set out to do. I had the experience that I wanted to get.
1: I think it's like, it could be even worse than being a civilian during a time of war and not serving your country because you got so close to it, but you, you didn't actually go over the top. You know, you were right there, but you made a decision or a decision was made for you that you didn't do it. And I think that that could be that could be really challenging, you know, and I can see where that would create a lot of, you know what I mean? Anguish.
0: Well, I re- I, this is totally off topic, but I just remember years ago hearing a quote from Jay Moore, the comedian, and he was like uh, talking about his respect for the military. And he's like, yeah, he's like, I, you know, if, if, if comedy hadn't worked out, you know, and being at nine 11 happened, all that, he's like, yeah, I'd have, I'd have gone in and been a Ranger, you know, and all that. And it's like, you can say that, and you might be right. Who, who the fuck knows? <laughs> if you've been in the service, were you a ranger? Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. Well, then why no. not? You know. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, you, it, you you lose that that cover for action there, and it, it it's um, yeah, that was weird. It's weird the tricks that the mind and the ego play on you that way.
1: Well, it's, so ever- it's always
0: it's always no, sorry, things.
1: It's just like how many times have you've been told, "Well, I was gonna join, but." this kind of thing you're just like don't even tell me this story don't tell me this story you know
0: well it's it's like everybody's got a story of why they didn't make it through selection for sf yeah there's always everybody's got a story and 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 it's you just don't want to hear it anymore it's like okay i I, and it's not that they're invalid you know there's a lot of great reasons to not make it through selection that are perfectly valid and don't demean you as a human being but you know yeah it's it's um
1: it's very devastating if their biggest story is about the failure of not making it. You know what I mean? That's horrifying. You know what I mean?
0: If that's what you're hanging your hat on in the bar. That is fucking true. That is, I think there's also something. Um, I can't remember where I heard this, but somebody smarter than me said this. That the most devastating thing in life is to meet the person that you should have been.
1: Yeah, shit. That's pretty profound.
0: Right. Yeah, And I, th- I and I'll, let me, let me turn that in the form of a question. Uh, do you feel like that applies to you that you, that that's one of the, and I use this word advisedly, is that one of the, the beautiful benevolent things of your experience is that you can look back and go, I don't have that. Like I can look and yeah. go, I mean, maybe I haven't done other things, but shit, I, I don't have any self doubt yeah. about that. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, but the, because people are insane, like my big self-doubt is like, was I a coward for not extending and going to Afghanistan with my friends again? You know what right. I mean? So that's, right. it's, it's it's almost, it can't be satiated. You know what I mean? It yeah. almost can't, because you're like, I could have done more. I, yeah. I should have done more. You know? Right.
0: Well, it's it's weird. And I'm I'm this is either going to be a brilliant point or it, I'm just going to make an ass of myself by saying it. But I almost feel like the only way out is is suicide and i wonder if, how much of it i'm just thinking that out loud but it, i wonder how much of a temptation that is where it's like there's always gonna be somebody better and i'm still insecure and no matter what i yeah. do i'm still insecure and i can't get over this hump so hey if i die i died and at least there's maybe not nobility in having killed myself but fuck i went there and, mm-hmm. and that's all i can do i, I don't know is that you know, i'm just thinking out loud but i wonder no, how I much mean, temptation that's... that is
1: Yes, yeah, you become, there's a couple of things happening, I think. Uh, one of them is that you become envious of the dead. You know what I mean? You become envious of these, of your friends that died because in most people's eyes, they're perfect. You know what I mean? Like they died as the ideal and they'll never be corrupted because they never lived long enough to destroy what they were. You know, whereas the rest of us are all getting fat. We're alcoholics. You know what I mean? Marriages are falling apart. Uh, we're not as successful as we wanted to be. Uh, we get to be this old withered self and then we get to look back at this, you know, what we used to be and they get to stay that forever. And I I think that that's, that can be appealing. You know what I mean? And that can be envious. You're like, this is, you know, and I think another thing that can happen, at least this was in my situation, I twisted my sense of service into thinking that I was doing my family a service by killing myself to where I thought that I was poison. And if I was around, I would be poisoning everybody. So I got to twist my original sense of service that got me into the Marine Corps and be like, I'll, I'm doing my job if I kill myself because I'm taking a threat away from my family. Wow. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's a common thing, but that's <clears throat> that was my rationale.
0: You know. Yeah, that's heavy. That's heavy. Let's let's talk about family for a second. I don't want to leave out the fact that you know one of the major themes of the book is Melissa. And you and obviously for those that haven't read the book, I'll just give it a little spoiler. Well, maybe maybe I'll have you tell in case you said me butchering the, the whole narrative of it. Talk about what Melissa meant to your service and to your career and to the book.
1: You know, she was just that um I guess that little piece of kind of humanity that I held on to throughout the entire experience uh certainly through that first deployment she would just be the the place my mind would go when I would think about like a normal life and then I would think about coming home and that kind of stuff and a small piece because for the most part I tried to burn all that up because I thought it was not good to have that kind of those kind of thoughts when you're over there um but then you know I got done with that first deployment and I I think everybody, if they say they didn't have problem, like coming back from a combat deployment, you're not a little fucked up. Those are the people I worry about. Cause I feel like those are kind of sociopaths right. and that's a, right. that could be a problem. You know what I mean? Right. But like you have this, this, this strange feeling where you're like you're still ramped up. The RPMs are still going all the way up, but you're like at Applebee's or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I was just, you know, having troubles, you know? And so I got back from that first deployment and, uh, you know, impulsively, you know, Melissa was there, thank God. So we reconnected and then like a crazy person, I would like, will you marry me? You know, and then her, like a crazy person was like, yes. You know, and this is the classic case of things that are not going to work out. You know what I mean? So, uh, I'm just thankful that they didn't work out. You know what I mean? So we've been, this December we'll have been married, uh, or this last December was 15 years we've been wow. married. So, uh, wow. I mean, there's like, two of us that got married in the Marines that are still married out of like of course. 20 people, of course. you know? Yeah. So it's, I think it's kind of a unique situation. And, uh, but like, even through the writing process, like she's who I'm writing to a lot of the time. You yeah. know, I'm writing for her. I want to get the gratification of making her laugh or cry or that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that's a huge part of my motivation for writing.
0: One thing that I, I really, that's jumped out at me is, um, she was your crush. Like she yeah. was your fantasy while you were overseas. She was your crush before and you guys hadn't been dating. Yeah, beforehand. So it was there was a fantastical element to this relationship where as I'm reading it, I'm like, "Wow, I wonder if this is actually going to pan out for him because that's yeah. I think every guy has a fantasy, you know, whether it's in boot camp, whether it's when you're making the transition in the military, whatever. It's like, "Oh, yeah, there's something that's anchoring you some woman that's anchoring you back home. And then, you know, usually that's not how that works out. Um, and the, and the fact that it did is, um, is really remarkable, but that, um, that's a hell of a low story though.
1: Yeah, it, uh, it really is. <clears throat> like I said, I just don't, I don't know. She's got to be a little crazy too. to stick around here this whole time. But, uh, she just and I get into it towards the end of the book, but like that was one of the hardest parts of that time of my life because I saw that we had drifted apart entirely. You know what I mean? And, and that was like part of the part of the rough times when I got out. Is it like, oh, I'm completely, I've withdrawn myself and I've alienated myself from my wife, and now we're we're living these two separate paths. And uh, man, <clears throat> that uh, that was rough. You know, one of the. One of the worst aspects of what was going on with
0: me at that time. I'm I'm interested in that. Um, yeah, I'm in, I, I'm trying to decide if I really want to go down this path, um, but I, I think I will. I'm interested in that because um, again, this is my word, not yours. But but because she had been a crush, because she had been a fantasy for so long. Because you say in the uh, I think in the early chapters when you first mention her hey there's this girl Melissa I'd had a crush on her forever I'd never been able to talk to her and all this stuff
1: mm-hmm.
0: being that she'd been a crush for that long and then you see yourself your, yourself drifting apart from her I imagine that's very different than if someone finds themselves drifting apart from a wife that they met after a deployment or at some point later in adulthood this was a childhood crush this mm-hmm. was a I mean those high school crushes are you know pretty yeah. significant i think in in our development what did that mean for when you find yourself drifting apart does that is it like drift and i'm i'm literally asking i'm just wondering what this experience is like is that like drifting apart even from who you were in high school or the old you because so much of you is tied to those initial feelings for her or is because i just feel like that would be a very different experience than if you guys had met in your late 20s at a bar, you know, after work, it, it, there's not quite the depth of of history that you would have, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm just wondering what that would be like if if there's, um, if you have to, if you have to look and go, God, I've changed a lot because I know yeah. this is my true north. This is what I was mm-hmm. attracted to. So if I'm not aligning with this, I'm not really myself. Is that kind of making sense? I'm, I'm, Oh, I'm being, yeah. I mean,
1: and that was, you know, it's one of the culminating things is I'm like, I've, I've kind of lost that whatever tether I had to mm-hmm. what, uh, what I'm going for and all my motivations, all my you know, dreams and my plans for the future. It's, it's drifted away. You know what I mean? I've lost that, you know, like you said, that true North. And so what, what has happened to me? You know what I mean? And again, it, it starts like, what, what am I now? Like, am I, am I nothing now? You know what I mean? Like, am I a creature? So I, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's yeah. my headphones just died.
0: So if it sounds different now, that's what happened. But oh uh, gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that's why I have um, a, somebody on the back end that's gonna try to fix the sound anyway. So it's all good. Yeah, no,
1: man. It was uh you just that's like I said, it kind of all ties into that stuff of what I was saying about like how I'm like I've now I'm gonna twist this into I'm, I'm hurting melissa now too and i've got to take myself out of the equation because i see her in anguish every day because i'm a prick you know what i mean so it's like me do me going through with suicide or something like that i'm i'm not only i'm helping my kids i'm helping my wife like this yeah. is this is the the correct option you know and it's dangerous that it's dangerous that your brain can take you there you know what i mean it's dangerous yeah. Yeah. That it quickly it can happen you know and then uh Because you go from being the person that was like, no, I'll I want to die on top of a stack of dead bodies, you know what I mean? Right. I'll never kill myself. I'll never give up to really thinking about how it's probably the correct option. And I don't know, I don't know how you I mean it's still something I'm trying to figure out, but it's like, how do you get there? How does it happen so easily?
0: I want to come back to that in a second because yeah, I think that's a question worth mining. I, I just do want to bring up one of the I guess funnier parts of that relationship with Melissa. And one of the few parts that I wanted you to explain more in the book, it was one of the parts I was like, wait, wait, what just happened? So you talk about when you first kiss her and then you open the door and she breaks her nose or something on it and then kind of runs off and you run off. And I'm like, wait, what the fuck just happened? Wait. How? And, and that was like your ultra awkward first kiss. What the fuck happened? Exactly. Yeah,
1: it was. That's what I was standing there going like, "What the fuck just happened?" But, but uh, so I'm, we're partying in this double wide trailer, right? You know what I mean? As high school kids will do. Um, I finally work up the nerve to kiss her, right? I kiss her. In my head, it's the, the greatest kiss in you know our generation. And but she's got to go afterwards. And I don't know if that was because of the kiss or what, but she's got to go. So she she leaves, and she's getting in her friend's car, and there's a little bit of ice on the ground. So she grabs the handle, slips, and then pulls the door into her face and smashes her nose. And I go to see her the next day because she's playing basketball. And uh, I'm like, she just pretended it never happened. I'm like, this is the worst fucking thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. You know what I mean? I was so close to greatness, and it's all it's all ruined. You know
0: what I mean? So that was, uh, yeah. Oh my god, have you guys ever talked about that? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, It comes up. All yeah. The time. Oh my god, that's fucking hilarious. Listen, I, 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 I want to wrap this up. You've been incredibly generous with time, and I don't want to keep you all day. But I do want to um, ask, now having written the book, the reception that it's gotten, um, what do you hope the takeaway to be for people? I mean, for guys that were
1: there, I want them to read it and be like, you know what, Casey's not full of shit. This is how it really was. You know, that's Mm. uh, for guys that were there. I think that's that's some of the feedback I've gotten to. They're like, I don't know how you did it, dude, but it was that's what it was. You know, so that's that's by far the most meaningful experience. And for civilians, like I, I don't I want people to remember that there were kids like us that went and did that. You know, and it wasn't that long ago and we're still walking around here. We're still living, you know, and but at that time there, you sent these kids to go do that. And you need to think about that and what that means. And if we ever want to do that again, you got to you got to think that this is it's a big commitment. You know what I mean? And you got to be sure if you're going to send kids to war, because, uh, you know, I think about my own kids now. And I'm like, yeah, you want to make sure it's the right thing. You want to make sure it's. And so I want people to think about that. Uh, And I mean, like we talked about earlier, I just kind of want, and I think it's starting to happen now with the GWAT literary community, because I think that it takes time to get the tools to tell these stories. And I think we're just now getting to that distance to where we've got guys that have been studying, reading, writing, and now they're finally getting the tools that these stories are going to start coming out, you know, in even better forms. So I'm looking forward to that too.
0: We talked before just about the root causes of Iraq, and I just want to uh, go back to that a little just because you mentioned it. When you talk about civilians learning from it and going, hey, think about what you're doing when you send young men to war because we were there. There's also the argument to make that (laughs) in a very perverse way, they also sending you to war gave you some of the most meaningful, impactful Experiences of your life. And for kids now, or those that aspire to have those experiences now, again, not saying one seeks out, but just saying there's that it's not, it's, would I be right or would you feel I'm right in saying that war is amoral, that it might be good, it might not be, it could be either. But regardless, there are also some of the best times in your life and some of the most ennobling times in your life and some of the most demoralizing destructive times in your life all wrapped up in one. So it's neither an all or nothing proposition. Um, And, and therefore, so on the micro, so on the macro level, yeah, we need to make sure that war is justified before we send people on the micro level. Those that do go to war will come out of it with some of the best experiences of their lives and some of the worst experiences of their lives. And regardless to those that make it, which is not a guarantee it might, there can also be value in that.
1: Yeah, there's a lot there. Uh, <clears throat> so I think that you, you know, your statement's is pretty correct and that war is basically like a force of nature. It's kind of a thing that's going to exist. I, I don't ever see it non-existent. Um, but for the warriors, I don't, I don't, I'm not the ones like I'm concerned about, you know what I mean? Like, we we're going to go no matter what. Uh but you have to before you point us in that direction like it's not just us that are going, you know what I mean, it's our families, it's our kids. It's the kids that are over in the other place. You know what I mean? So for us, you know, we're doing exactly what we think we should be doing. But you know, I didn't I didn't really lose my composure on that first deployment until I saw the parents at the memorial service afterwards. And then it starts to, you you your your young mind starts to realize that Oh, well, there's whole families attached to every single Marine that's over there. Yeah. And then, uh, this, you fund these people's lives have been fundamentally changed forever. They'll, they're never going to be right. You know? And, uh, so that's more what I'm talking about. Like, yeah, these guys like us, we're going to go no matter what, you know what right. I mean? Right. We're gonna do ourselves, We're going we're gonna to cry. We're going to do the whole damn thing, but it's a lot bigger than just us. And, uh, so there's serious ramifications for it, and uh, yeah, I guess that's what I'd say about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm telling you right now because I feel like a dick every time I do this on the show, where I talk to somebody, and then when I'm doing the intro or the outro for the show, and I'm recording it later, I just start to pontificate about something. I'm like, probably should have talked about this with the guest as opposed to talking about it in in, in framing what the conversation is going to be. So again, I don't want to take up a ton of your time with it, I but I want to throw out to you and ask you, how worthwhile now, looking back, do you think Iraq was? I know we talked about it before, but I just want to throw that out again.
1: Well, it's I think you've got to, as you hinted at that earlier, you got to look at the macro and the micro, like on a fundamental level. I think I'm a stronger person because I went to Iraq. I think I'm a more durable person because of what I experienced. And uh, I don't think I would have been a fully, maybe I would have found it someplace else. I don't know if I would have been a fully actualized human without the experience of combat. But if you, you know, you hover at the top and you see what did we accomplish? What uh, is the place better off now? You know, how many people died? excuse me um you know both iraq civilians and you know what i mean mm-hmm. American troops, like i don't know i really just don't know uh i'll cling to experiences you know what i mean yeah. and I'll yeah. but uh, as far as the whole what what the hell happened there it's like i don't know what the hell did just happen there
0: i this is something i've, I've talked about on the show occasionally and i'll just share it with you for a reaction um because i i I, I think it's important, at least to my mind, to share this with other veterans, and they can refute it or agree with it as they see fit. But I think it's—I think it's important because I come from it with the point of view that I think people should fucking recognize when their service was worthwhile and when it wasn't. And I—I fir- I, I firmly own the camp that I think Iraq was worthwhile, um, and I say that for a couple of reasons. I'll just quickly list them, um, and you can refute or, or rebut or disagree or agree as you see fit. But the WMD thing, you know, if Saddam's gonna lie to everybody except himself and say he has WMDs after 911, we don't have the luxury of of assuming that he's lying. You know, in the wake of nine eleven we have to go, yeah, I, I think there is a lot of proof, especially because he had WMDs and he'd used them on his own people before. So he had the motive, the means, and the opportunity. We did recover WMDs in Iraq. We didn't recover as many as we thought. There were a lot of trains that went into Syria um, covered in lead, so our satellites couldn't penetrate them. Um, Not coincidentally, Syria then has had a lot of chlorine gas attacks and all that stuff ever since. Not saying it's the same ones, but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence there. And then after the Osama bin Laden raid, we started to get leaks about, we know Ansar al-Islam in northern Iraq was tied to al-Qaeda. We know Saddam was paying off suicide bombers, both by Hezbollah, but also al qaeda linked the sunni shia rift really wasn't there when it came to just attacking america um so i think i think it's you know certainly has not been a clear you know hey hitler and the nazis you know kind of clear delineation of of like boy we really did the right thing and everything worked out but i think there's a very good argument to make that in the wake of 9/11 it would have been negligent for us to not take that threat at face value especially when there was evidence to say that This made sense and to go do that. And that was, and that, and then we did keep attacks from happening here that were based out of Iraq. And yes, we drew a lot of Iranian presence and we drew the Mahdi army, you know, the Mahdi army supported by Iran and all that. There were a lot of things that happened there. Um, you know, and we certainly drew the hornets out of the nest and mistakenly let them fester there as opposed to completely exercising them. I don't say all this, and I want to be clear. I'm not saying this necessarily for a political or geopolitical argument, although that can I'm fine with that too. But I'm saying it mostly because I I feel for guys who were in Iraq. I was not. I did not do an Iraq deployment. But I feel for guys that were there that go, "Shit, um, I don't think it was worth it," and I'm paid X Y Z price for it. And I'm like, "Yeah, dude. I don't know. I don't know. I think there would have been blood on the streets either way. I think had that not been responded to." There was evil festering there, and um, you know, I uh, I I think there's a, a very strong argument to be made. We'll never know what would have happened had we not gone. Obviously, it's all speculative, but I think there's a pretty damn good argument to make. Yeah, hey, you know, it's not it's not a legal action. You know, it's not yeah. something where we're going to have a smoking gun necessarily and be able to go. You know, we can prove it in a court of law. But that's war, that's foreign policy, you know. So I I again this is me not pontificating about it in the intro or the outro and going, I wonder what Casey would have thought about that. Yeah. And 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 just throwing it out there to you for any kind of reaction.
1: Yeah, no, I mean there's there's no doubt about it that Saddam was an evil fucker. You know what I mean? Like that's he definitely was. There's definitely a lot of bad shit that happened. But it's like also there's a lot of bad shit that happens everywhere and we don't get involved. That's a definite thing that happens. Um so I just don't know. I just don't know. But at the end of the day, like I told you earlier, you know, seventeen-year-old Casey doesn't really give yeah. A shit. Yeah, you no, know, there's a fight. He's gonna go there. Yeah. you know, at the time, he was like, "Yeah, Colin Powell. He's he's the man. I'll, I believe every word he says." I read in Newsweek. Sure. Uh, was it bullshit? I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? I uh, part of me, part of me goes to the uh, <clears throat> the more cynical side of who made a bunch of money off the war you know, uh, who was, who benefited the most from the war. Uh, That's a little cynical. And you can kind of get the press looking into this sheer amount of money that was made on the back of the global war on terror and who the key players were and who was involved. And you can start to, uh, you can definitely go down a rabbit hole of uh, Mm -hmm. following and being like, wait, what was going on? How much money was being spent? Uh, That's a problem. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. who had actual ties to, know big companies like Halliburton and that kind of stuff. You're like well, that seems like a straight up conflict of interest if you're pushing for war when your former company stands to make billions of dollars. Like that's a it's questionable at least enough to make mm-hmm. you sit and think about it. But uh again, I kind of go back to the uh at the end of the day it doesn't really matter.
0: Yeah. No, and I mean and I I yes and and your book is certainly one about the individual experience of the warfighter and I think something that everybody can relate to um, I'm glad I didn't fucking just throw that out at the end i was sitting there going oh, I'm gonna do this yeah. in the outro this is gonna be such a dick move um, yeah there's a conversation there I'm not gonna we, we don't have to talk about it now I I I, I, I mean I, I was definitely aware of those arguments at the time and and with Cheney and all that and you know he divested himself of Halliburton but what, you know I, I, re- I get it yeah, yeah and, and and I and I I, I get those arguments. Um, part of me, you know, I I think you know I remember in 2004 all the marches about no blood for oil, and I was like, what what oil? What American companies ever went in? I mean, for all the talks about it, here we are the imperialists, I'm like, really? Because no American company ever went in and took oil from Iraq. We we held off. Now the Germans and the French and everybody that was opposing us going peace, peace, peace. They were the ones that oil deals with Saddam and didn't want us to go in. So all our NATO allies were over there being squirrely as fuck about it. We were pretty fucking righteous, uh, in my view. I look at that and I go, Yeah, we, we did pretty fucking well. And um, you know, we didn't come in and exploit, and we certainly were our sins were ironically trying to leave a light footprint, not trying to leave a heavy footprint until we realized that wasn't working and we had to do a heavy footprint. Um, but you know, <laughs> you know
1: Except we're not having a plan in place for after the invasion because we sure. could conduct- this masterful invasion which sure. especially now you look at ukraine and stuff Go, like, hey I, we're pretty good at invading countries like we're actually pretty legit uh but it didn't seem that there was a great plan for after you seize, seize the objective like what do you do with these people it's like totally. geez, guys did we not think of what happens next yeah that's one of my big problems i have with it i'm like just seems like incompetence
0: the the execution but i i agree and then I also say, and which war exactly have we executed a hundred percent perfectly ever? Like, I mean, the civil yeah. war was a clusterfuck up until the very end world mm-hmm. war two. Holy shit. I mean, it took until 1944 for us to get D-Day together. Vietnam was Vietnam. You know, it's like, you know, war. War we're like football's all about halftime adjustments. And I guess I, I would say historically, we probably caught our mistakes earlier in Iraq than we had in most, in, in any other American war, but you know, it's war also. And, and, yeah. We're going to fuck it up like there's going to be fuck ups and we're going to be fighting the last war every time and then mm-hmm. go shit. What do we do now? And I say like for me, I I, I keep coming back to this, but I want to reiterate it. I keep coming back to it mostly just because I don't I fucking hate to hear guys. I, I feel like there's been a lot of talking points that have la- been laid out because in America we don't have the cultural vocabulary for war now. And it, and we have to go back and adopt the Vietnam thing that a lot of people have adopted. Vietnam talking points: the government lied to us and all this. Did they, or was it the best intelligence you could possibly get at that time? And hey, shit, curveball was, you know, fucking telling tales, and nobody else would have known, and we had no ability to verify. And I look at that and I go, yeah. I mean, in Vietnam, there's there's a case to make. For in Iraq, I, I don't know, and I just and I just hate it because I I don't want people. I want guys to know there's an argument for what they did, that what they did might, God forbid, have been noble and might, yeah. God forbid, have been, you know, not the worst thing in the world. And we don't necessarily have to adopt the Vietnam era rhetoric, you know, to explain our experience in Iraq and that it was different. Not that you're doing that. Let me be clear. Uh, or not that I see you doing that. But that's that's kind of my that's the chip I always carry on my shoulder because I just I'm, I'm like, hey, motherfuckers, we, we did good. And we were, and you know, we, it, it doesn't mean things were perfect because war is imperfect. And I think you captured that experience beautifully and uh, the shame and all that. And just, you know, with the, the experience with the little girl, it's like, fuck, man. Yeah, I, I get it. It's, you know, it's I mean, it
1: hot, like one positive thing of that first deployment is like, when we first got there, it was chaos. It was a dark, dark city. There was people getting their heads cut off. We'd find bodies in the street, you bullets in the back of the head, that kind of stuff. And by the end of it, you could walk down the streets and hear birds chirping. You know what I mean? And nothing was. And so I guess that's a real tangible thing that happened and I experienced. You know, Um, I don't know how long it lasted after we left. Sure, sure. I I don't know, but it seemed like we killed enough bad guys to make a difference while we were there in that moment. Uh, But yeah,
0: yeah. I know it's all speculative. How do you know, dude? Um, this was a fucking pleasure and I'm, I'm congratulating myself for not completely fanboying for an hour and a half and trying to find something of substance to talk about instead. Um, but really it's a spectacular book and I know you're proud of it. Um, and you fucking should be, I think it's, a, truly a worthwhile addition to the canon of military literature in American history. I, I really mean that it's a phenomenal piece of literature. And um, I really hope your legal career goes horribly and you turn back to writing sooner than later. Um, but it's really,
1: it's still going to pass the bar. So
0: oh, there you go. Okay. So, so hope springs eternal. Yeah. We'll see. Um, dude, seriously, it's been a pleasure. Um, let's do this again at some point, please. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Chris. That was the savage wonder of Casey Tellison. I'm so glad he came on and I can't wait for the next time. Um, i say that probably for almost everybody, but goddamn, damn, I always mean it. And, and in Casey's case, I really enjoyed the shit out of that. Um, that book moved me that book. Um, you know, as you guys heard in the episode, I mean, I was there in Port Jervis reading that book and I swear people must have thought I was a nut job, you know, trying to hide the occasional wiping of the eyes and all that. Um, Yeah. A hell of a read if you guys haven't read freaks of a feather do yourselves a favor go go get it it really is a phenomenal read um you will not be sorry it is not your typical war memoir and it um i think there's i, I can't think of a better book to understand a marine grunts mentality um in the memoir space uh, I, I think I think He really captures The mindset Excruciatingly well um, You know, When it comes to poetry My buddy Mason Roderick Obviously I think Has written a seminal Book on it There's a bunch of There's a bunch of Amazing marine authors Right now There's no two ways About it uh, But when it comes To just straight Creative nonfiction Memoir That one is Pretty fucking good Okay On that note I should do some Shameless plugging So Uh for VETREP, Veterans Repertory Theater. If you're not already aware of who we are and what we do, uh, you should be. Go check us out at VETREP.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VETREP.org. And while you're there, probably the best thing to do is to subscribe to our mailing list, which doubles as a literary blog. So when you subscribe for free, you will receive a little tidbit of veteran writing in your email inbox every single day. And then below that, we put a couple of shameless plugs about whatever stuff we have going on. We do have so much stuff going on. Uh, There's no way I'm going to remember all of it right now. So the best thing to do is to go there and subscribe. So when you go to vetrep.org, just scroll down the homepage. You'll see where it gives you the option to subscribe and um, do that. You will not be sorry. You will discover many phenomenal veteran writers if you don't already know them. And you'll see all the other cool live events that we have going on on multiple platforms uh, and maybe even, God forbid, near you. So check it out. Uh, You will not be sorry. The only thing I can think of off the top of my head, though, that I really want to plug is if you're in the Hudson Valley, New York area, or if you're not, but you feel like making a commute there, uh, starting March 4th, we will begin acting classes at Veterans Repertory Theater. They are available to anyone Veteran or civilian, 18 years of age or more. If you are a veteran, though, reach out to us because we have scholarships available. So you can take the class for free or if there's something catastrophic, it would just reduce your cost. But generally, the classes will be free if you're a veteran. So reach out to us for scholarship information. Um, but the acting classes are going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be comedic improv, some Stanislavski, some Meisner. um And just a great chance to kind of actually give something to the community, um, have some fun with our friends, neighbors uh, in the area, and help build a thriving artistic community here with veterans and civilians alike. So um, we're really looking forward to that. And our Playwriting for Veterans class will continue In March, I just don't have a date yet, but there will be one in March. And the more we have people show up at these, the more we'll start expanding the classes and doing them more often, and not just once a month, but maybe twice a month, every week. Who knows? All right. Everything else you should know about VetRep.org for about Veterans Repertory Theater. Go to VetRep.org and you can learn all about it. I need to thank our producer for this episode, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf. A veteran's repertory theater. See you next time, when we will dive further into the savage wonder of another veteran in the arts.